Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. What are you doing November 6th, Sherry? Want to join me on a is that the, open I, session for the developing story? Yeah, I was going to say, isn't that a Monday? And then I was going to realize that it was the and, open uh, You don't have your calendar story. in front of you. I just kind of yeah. ambushed you there. Sorry. I was trying to count from Halloween on. and Yeah. And, yeah. That'll be fun. Yeah. So the deal is... Um, Rather than having to go through the full enrollment process to join the developing story, which is our writing group for teenagers who have experienced alcoholism in their home, rather than having to go through the whole enrollment process, it's a come one, come all kind of a session. Catherine, our 21-year-old daughter, is going to run it. She's going to offer a writing prompt and give some guidance to everyone, and then everyone will get a chance to write right there on the Zoom call. And then after a little bit of a writing period, people can read what they've read, written, and receive feedback from the group. And it's just a way for people to dip their toe in the water without fully enrolling in the program. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, should be good. Yeah. So in order to express interest and get the Zoom link and be invited to this meeting, all you have to do is go to our webpage for the developing story, which is Ironically enough, thedevelopingstory.org. Gosh, you make it so complicated. I know. Thedevelopingstory.org. And at the bottom of that is the first step in enrollment where you just give us your name and your email address. And if we can just get that step taken care of, then we will send you the Zoom link. It's not. There's no commitment. There's no payment portal. There's nothing other than a name and an email. And if we can get that, then you, and and we also want to be clear about this. Not only are the teenagers invited to this open session, but the parents are as well. So the parents can check it out, see what they think, see if they feel like this might be a good fit. The kids can get that same feel too. No commitment, no long-term, nothing, no money, easy peasy. Because I think a lot of people are interested, but they're, for a variety of reasons, kind of nervous about joining us. So let's give you a way to join that has absolutely the lowest possible bar to get over that we can think of. Sound good, Sherry? Absolutely. Okay, great. I've got a listener question. Are you ready? Uh-huh. I listened to you, Matt, emphasize the value of detachment. But in your relationship, detachment never progressed to physical separation. Would your opinion... B, that me moving out would be a step too far for detachment. Do you think that Sherry's presence at least was enough to keep you on track, even if she had her own path to follow recovery-wise? Great question. Mm-hmm. I think it's a particularly great question because I have for some time now wanted to address the hypocrisy that I feel like I, you know, that I give off, feel like a hypocrite because I, you know, I, you and I never separated. Right. And yet when we talk about detachment, detachment going all the way to the step of of physical separation, living in two different places is not something I poo poo. And so in fact, depending on the circumstances, it's something that you know, I don't know that I'd say I recommend because I try not to tell people what to do, but it certainly is something that I would endorse as being logical if somebody brought that to us and, and gave the right circumstances. And so given the fact that I endorse physical separation in marital couples and the fact that you and I never separated, that sounds like I'm a big fat hypocrite. Yeah, uh, I thought you were going to add on to that a little bit. Um, Yeah, I think, but I think it's situational. Yeah. So that's where I thought maybe you were going to lead in. My emotional detachment was enough for you to kind of realize, oh, this is getting really bad. So it didn't really need to lead to physical separation. 
Yeah. For us. I mean, the kids weren't really, at that point, with your drinking, they weren't seeing you, like, passed out in the middle of the day. And actually, you were kind of drinking a lot less than what you had to had done comparatively before. Um, it was just causing you anxiety and depression. So... Those so, circumstances do matter. You're yeah, right. Yeah, I think that and it was I, very situational for let, us. Let's talk through the circumstances and the situations that you and I encounter. And I, I want to make this point, too. We're, I think this is such a great listener question and such an important topic that you and I have discussed this. And we're actually going to do this in two parts. Today, you and I are going to give our feedback, our thoughts on the topic. And then next week, we're going to have a roundtable uh, version of the podcast with some folks who have experienced separation in their relationship or who are considering separation in their relationship and how that has played out for them. So it's not just going to be you and me talking about it. Uh, I think this is a really important one and we'll have some feedback from some others on this is episode 213, 214 is kind of a partnered episode, kind of part two of the same topic. So I'm looking forward to hearing other perspectives next week as well. Um, why I believe in detachment, even up to and including separation, um, there there's a about three main reasons, and I want to hear your reaction to those and, and anything that I'm missing, anything else that you believe as as it relates to why detachment is important and can be effective up to and including separation. You know, I've talked about this before, but I am not a fan of the traditional wedding vows, the in sickness and in health, or the till death do us part. I think those do us a disservice as humans because they get weaponized and and we use them against our spouses. I know I certainly did. I, you know, I don't remember exactly using the in sickness and in health, but I probably did. I probably said, I have a disease of alcoholism, and so you can't leave me because you swore to be with me in sickness and in health. Did I did I say that or we just heard other people say that? I don't think you ever said that. I know in the beginning of our marriage, you were really a big proponent against divorce. Yeah. Wanted to work everything out at all cost. You thought that my family, coming from a family with divorced people, you thought maybe I threw that around too haphazardly. Yeah. Um, so... But I don't think it was ever used necessarily against me in the sickness and health. But the till death do us part, I did. But the till death do us part, you definitely said, I thought we were going to make it together. But then we had a situation where we had some friends of ours from college that got divorced, and we could see both sides. And, and some, of the fam- some of these couples were much happier separated. So for them, it was okay. But I think for you and I, you still thought we needed to work everything out and, and try to stay together. Well, it's funny you say that because... When we, you know, we went through that period of what about five Three, years yeah. where everybody we knew was getting married, and we went to like a zillion yeah. weddings, and then a few years later, people like, started getting divorced. Like those same people that we all went to their wedding, it was like less a, than ten years later there were divorces. A big percentage for yeah. sure. And I remember when that first started to happen, I was very much into taking sides, figuring out who was right and who was wrong. It was it had to be a black and white issue for me. And then later down the road. Then I I learned from it and recognized, as you're saying, that sometimes they're just not a good match. Sometimes it's better for all involved to separate and divorce, and it didn't have to be one person's fault or the or the other. Although there were definitely situations where it was clearly one person's fault. But I lost a good friend over this. I I lost a good friend by taking sides and not considering his perspective. And uh, you know, I was the first to say. I don't think I want to have anything to do with you. And then when I reached out to him a little later on, he didn't want anything to do with me. And mm-hmm. I, I don't blame him. So, so yeah, I, I think the whole topic of divorce and separation is complicated. It's situational. But the till death do us part and the in sickness and in health, it doesn't do us any favors as far as the wedding vows. So I think of... Not just marriage, but even just long-term romantic relationships, long-term partnerships. I think of them from the standpoint of being mutual protection agreements. And so, you know, you, you and I, we have a fairly traditional marriage. 
there are gender roles that we fit right into, but I, I would not go so far as to say it is my job to for the safety and security of my family is 100% my job and Sherry should just cower in the corner and hope that I'm strong enough to protect us. I don't feel that way. I feel that we have made a mutual agreement to protect each other. You know, if we're camping and there's a bear outside, uh, I'll probably go <laughs> Every man first. for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Actually, but remember that one time in... Uh, uh, Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon when we did hear yeah. an animal outside. I did go out there in my underwear with my little rusty hatchet <laughs> and uh, stand there and cower and cry and pee on myself <laughs> until it went away. But I did stand outside the tent while you guys were thinking, inside. Shouldn't we all just get in the car? Shouldn't we all just get in the car? <laughs> I wasn't sure we could make it to the car. But yeah, I, I don't... So I view our marriage as a mutual protection agreement. There are things that you're doing to protect me and things I'm doing to protect you. And, you know, trust falls under that umbrella and decision-making and partnership and just all of those words. And when alcoholism enters the relationship, what is very, very typical is for the alcoholic, the me in this case, to become aggressive, to become angry, to say nasty words, to gaslight, to deny obvious things. And so I go from being your partner in a mutual protection agreement to being the most dangerous thing in your life. You don't spend a lot of time in dark alleys after midnight. You don't, you know, dress in all black and try to cross the busy highway on foot in the middle of the night. There aren't you know, you avoid danger. We live a pretty normal middle class life in a moderately safe city with, uh, you know, a brick house that we live in. And we're not, you know, doing a lot of um, base jumping or we don't skateboard on the highway. We, we live a pretty safe life. So it doesn't take much for me in... Uh, under the, in the grips of active addiction and alcoholism, it doesn't take much for me to become the most dangerous thing in your life. So, we go from mutual protection agreement to I'm the most dangerous thing in your life, and you just simply deserve better. Now, immediately, this cycle of bad behavior that get, becomes accepted and normalized in alcoholic relationships where I yell and scream and I call you bad names and I gaslight you, but then I sober up and I apologize and I wipe my hands clean of it and move on after a few days of being depressed with myself. And then we go a couple of weeks and then it happens again. That cycle that was familiar to us and is familiar to so many people, that is just flat not okay. Mm -hmm. And so we lived in that situation for 10 years. And that, that is kind of point number two for me of why I think detachment is important all the way up to and including separation. We lost a decade, and it was while our our oldest kids were young, and they experienced things they shouldn't have had to, and it's going to affect them. It is already affecting them and will continue to affect them in their adult life, and that is just not fair or okay. So one of the reasons that I endorse separation now, even though you and I didn't go through it, is because what we did go through was awful, and it should just not be accepted. And there's literally millions of people living in that situation with those cycles of, you know, high-functioning high alcoholics. So they hold down their job. They keep things on the rail for the most part. But every couple of weeks or maybe it's every weekend or maybe it's once a month, they drink too much and they yell and scream and they say nasty words. And they put you in a dangerous situation. And the fact that we normalize that and say, oh, you know, we got to work on that. We got to work through it. The communication's got to be better. We've got to stop those cycles from happening, but we move on. That is not okay. And whatever you can do to save that decade of your life that you and I lost and recognize that it's not only not okay for the rest of your life, it's not okay right now. Let's put an end to it. I think that's important because we, we sit on here and we talk and we sound like we you know, we're full of ourselves and we're big-headed experts and we've got all the answers. 
we screwed this up for so long and we learned from our mistakes. And so, yes, we talk authoritatively and kind of know-it-all-ish now, but it's not because, you know, we thought up these great solutions when the problem first surfaced. We lived through hell. And I don't think we talk enough about that. I think it's important for people to recognize that, yeah, we laugh and joke on the podcast and things are pretty smooth for us now, but that is not the way it's always been. We're not like some, you know, we were blessed with an easy route through alcoholism and now we're just telling everybody what to do, which is how I feel sometimes. But that's not the case. It was awful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... I mean, I guess that would be just the lived experience that we're trying to share and trying to make it so people can avoid part of that, you know, so, yeah. Is that like your top goal? I know when we started out, I think the idea was when we started talking about this on the podcast, the idea was let's see if we can help people save their relationships by learning from our example, but. Learning from our mistakes is exactly kind of always approached it. For me, it's not about people saving their relationships anymore. It's for me, it's about them saving themselves and their kids. And you know, yes, our marriage is on solid ground now. But look, look what our kids had to go through for us to get here. I I don't want anyone to have to go through this the long way around. I want everyone to take the shortcut. Mm -hmm. And the shortcut might just include detachment. The, the other reason that we harp on detachment so much and talk so much about it, again, up to and including separation, is because in our experience, not only lived experience, but what we see with others, it's the only intervention that works. Can you think of anything else, Sherry? Like begging, pleading, yelling, screaming, interventions? Bribing. Nope. I mean, I really can't because I think, well... The person that you originally started the podcast with, Jason, was the one that kind of brought this to your attention. People only change when they're in enough pain themselves. That's right. So that's why the emotional detachment for you was was enough. Because your connection to me was so much stronger than my connection to you that I'm sure the aban- like that emotional abandonment was just hard for you. I mean, we have a child who... Like the worst, dis- the worst thing you could have done to discipline him was put him in a timeout or in a room alone because he's was an extrovert and needed to be around people. So that was like the absolute worst you could do for him right. as punishment. And you're sort of like that in a lot of ways. Like yeah. you need that connection. So that's why it worked for you. Some people it is it has to go all the way to like that physical separation and and kind of I don't want to say punishment, but I just don't see. You know, you have to gauge every individual and see what their, you know, and know what their, I don't know, kryptonite or what their currency is often described as parenting. Like what's that child's currency? Yeah. But I think that kind of like a version of the love language. No. What are they going to respond to? Yeah. Yeah. Like what, what what can be taken away? That's going to show them how serious you are about this behavior. Yeah. Um, so I think that's why each is individual, but I mean, whether it's emotional or physical detachment, there has to be something that shows that I'm not going to stand for this. And I think it's it's a way to show your alcoholic partner that I deserve more and I'm going to make sure I get more, too, to kind of wake them up. We've developed a professional relationship with Amber Hollingsworth and her Put the Shovel Down YouTube channel. She's been on our podcast twice. And we've uh, been on her YouTube channel twice. And I just love Amber. She is, unlike Sherry and I, unlike you and I, she is an actual therapist with letters behind her name and and formal education. And a team of therapists she works with. And a team she works with. She's like legit (laughs) as opposed to you and me. And she, um, but but there, as much as we agree, which I would say is probably in the vicinity of 90%, when we talk about issues related to alcoholism, recovery, and relationships, there are some areas where I push back from her. And I think it's really kind of interesting. She was never an alcoholic herself. And yet, 
in her approach, her approach offers more compassion for the alcoholics themselves mm -hmm. than what I think we should offer as far as compassion for the alcoholics themselves. And it's because the only thing that eventually worked for me was recognizing that I was going to lose my family if I didn't change my ways and stop drinking. And so we hear terms like detach with love. And I think that's a very confusing term for a lot of people. One of the examples I remember, somebody that we had on the podcast early on, talked about how her husband passed out on the front porch this time of year, you know, fall time of year when here in Colorado, the days are warm and the nights get pretty chilly. And it took a long time for that cold autumn air to wake him up. And when he finally came in, he was mad at her, still half drunk, right? And mad at her because she didn't... Woke up cold and angry. She yeah. didn't put a blanket on him. Yeah. And, you know, to her, that was a consequence. If you're going to pass out drunk on the front porch, you need to face some consequences. She obviously wouldn't, you know, if it was going to get down to negative 20 and he was going to die, yeah. she wouldn't have let him die, but she sure as heck was going to let him get down him to a little bit of a lesson. 35 degrees and get cold out there. Natural consequences. And I, I think of that story often <laughs> because I think those consequences are important. And, and I wish I had, and this is not me putting any blame on you for how long I was an active alcoholic, so please don't misunderstand. But I do wish I had had consequences earlier. I wish you and I had known what we were doing, or or even just you had known what, what we were doing, because there is no formal education for being married to an alcoholic, but I wish there was. And I wish you had imposed consequences on me in the way of you setting your own boundaries, what you're willing to tolerate and what you're not willing to tolerate, not as a punishment, but because... You deserve certain things. Again, going back to, I became the most dangerous thing in your life and you deserve better. Action should have been taken not to punish me, not because I was morally corrupt or not because I needed to be shamed, but because you deserve to not live that way. You deserve to not go through what you had to go through and the kids deserve to not go through what they had to go through. And I wish there were more people that were proponents for that and were espousing that belief and acknowledging that, listen, this isn't about how do we get the alcoholic sober? This is about how do we protect the family of the alcoholic from having to go through trauma? And that's what's most important to me. And so that's why I think Amber and I differ sometimes because, you know, she believes in offering just a little more compassion than I do to the alcoholic because Ultimately, the only thing that got me sober was, as you said, Jason's line that I had to be in enough pain that the status quo was intolerable and change was less painful. Because change is hard, right? Mm -hmm. So I had to get to the point where change was less painful than staying in the status quo. Well, I also think about a line we learned about, like not waiting for your alcoholic partner to hit rock bottom before things get bad. When you have made assertions for yourself, like, I am not going to be treated like this. I am not going to tolerate this behavior. You are raising, raising the, the bottom. bottom. Yeah. So I wish I had done that. I mean, I had made threats. Threats yeah. are empty and hollow. I never left. You know, like the times I, even before we had kids, I'd be like, I think I'm out of here. This is a crazy, messed up situation. But also I came in with a bunch of baggage that I couldn't sift through and sort through because it really wasn't spoken. My mom left my alcoholic father. I would say he was high-functioning because he kept a job and a lot of people didn't know he was an alcoholic. Right. But, you know, I mean, it's not like he was a corporate lawyer, well, you know. So, so I thought, you know, and the group he ran around with outside of work, some of them were pretty... I don't know, degenerate would be the word my mother would use. <laughs> um, pretty lowbrow, low class, perhaps. So did he compare favorably? Like he... he compared very favorably to some of his like Friday night dirt track cohorts that he, you know, went with. So I didn't really have a whole lot of comparison because it wasn't it wasn't communicated and talked about in a in a respectful way. It was just, oh, he's a drunk. 
from what I grew up with. So compared to him and, and you and what I saw in your family, I didn't have a good measurement tool. Yeah. And so well, I then, you know, was easily fooled. Like, oh, well, my mom, he's not hitting you. Well, no, he's not hitting me. My dad did hit my mom. And, you know, there was a physical abuse element there. Right. Um, right. But I so, like I like your your term raising the bottom. We shouldn't we shouldn't be tolerant of anything up to and, you know, up to and not including hitting someone. Oh, yeah. that's when you leave somebody. Right. If they start hitting you, you got to go. Right. Like, and then it. Bullshit. You yeah. got to have enough respect for yourself and enough uh, understanding of what you deserve. And it, not only respect for yourself, because that almost puts the blame on the the spouse. And I don't want to do that. You have to understand what this is going to do to your nervous system. What, how the, as we have often referenced the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kamp, I believe. I you fact checked? I think I actually just came up with that off the top of my head. I think that's right. Uh, but the book, The Body Keeps the Score and how trauma and emotional challenges and experiences and nervous system disruptions cause us physical ailments. Like, like, you know, joints not working and inflammation and organs failing and like it's serious stuff. And so whole body systems. When we look as a society and say, oh, well, he's not hitting you. So why don't you stick it out? Try to fix it. I think that's bullshit. Yeah. Well, then this is just going to I'm throwing this in there because I don't know when I'm going to get a chance to say it. But then from the alcoholic point of view, when they freaking are in sobriety and they make it through a day and they do the dishes and and the kids that under their watch are alive they act like we should be like oh god you are the hero of the day oh bless you for making sure that the one chore i asked you to do of the dishes and the children are still alive like so being just a normal partner being a normal dad being a normal human like the being the, the basic expectations. Being the basic expectations, exactly. Then it's really hard to give a lot of accolades and praise. And that's something that, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't think like Amber has talked about it so much, but there is like a little bit of that. Give them a little, you know, give them a little something to go on. Give your partner a little bit of verbal accolade to kind of keep them inspired and going. But that's when it's really hard. It's when it's really yeah. hard. You're yeah. raising the bottom and you're trying to put yourself and the kids' top priority and making sure you're getting what you deserve and they're just be meeting basic expectations and then that praise. It's another place where <coughs> the education is lacking. In this case, it's not the, the loved one, the spouse who needs more education. It's the it's us alcoholics ourselves. You know, if you treat somebody really badly and you go from your mutual protection agreement to being the most dangerous thing in their life and then you stop being the most dangerous thing in, in their life that is not worthy of accolades or uh, congratulations it just isn't so education is just vitally important on both fronts and it's just lacking in our I mean I don't know where you would educate I don't, I don't see this being part of K-12 through curriculum maybe it should be um no, but, it's not. It's just conversations. Yeah. Conversations and... Well, um, because alcoholism is kept in the shadows, right? And it's such a hush-hush thing and nobody talks, you know, talks about internal family disruptions and dysfunction. It just doesn't get talked about enough. And so we are uh, happy to talk about it ourselves. But yeah, that point about raising the bar is is, I think, really important. Um, so let's talk because I feel like such a hypocrite for recommending detachment up to and including separation, if it's situationally appropriate, let's talk about our situation a little bit more specifically. I was thinking about it and I took some notes about, you know, again, classifying people into maybe kind of three categories that they would fall into. And the first one is the one I fell into. I just flat out would not have let us separate. I would not have let a separation happen. Um, uh, I, 
I really believe that as much of a hold as alcohol had over me and as much as I love to drink alcohol, um, the, the shame and the loneliness that would have accompanied separation would have been too much for me. And I would have quit drinking to prevent that. And I don't even need to say that in a hypothetical. That's pretty much what happened. Even after 10 years of terrible behavior, I started to feel your detachment and recognize that the end was coming soon. And it wasn't because you were threatening. It wasn't because of idle threats, right? Or ultimatums. I just could sense the end was coming soon. And for me, the shame of losing my family combined with the fear of loneliness was enough to uh, to make me quit drinking. And I think the fear of loneliness part is important. I didn't come at this from a position of strength. I was very low self-esteem. I didn't think much of myself and I didn't think I could survive alone. I didn't think I could survive the loneliness alone. And so if you and the kids left, I don't think I would have physically survived it. I think I would have died one way or the other. Dying a, a death of despair, which is a real thing that actually gets tracked by the CDC now. Or, or I think actually falling into the category of a death of despair is when someone takes their own life. I think I don't think I would have survived it. And so it really was rock bottom for me. And, you know, a lot of people can look at our situation and say, well, you never separated and you never lost your job. And, you know, your kids still talk to you. Uh, so who are you to talk about detachment and separation? It never, it never came to that for you. Well, I would argue that it did. It came to it just faster for me because I was weaker. I think there are people that prioritize alcohol more in their life and prioritize their independence more and have different childhood experiences and can tolerate separation. I just wasn't one of those people. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, so, it's, I mean, so it's not a sign of strength, it's a sign of weakness. I was too weak to tolerate separation. Well, and I think that when we've talked about how I detached, I didn't know I was detaching, I had just had enough. I mean, I, I did know enough about you and your behavior to know that like talking to you about alcohol and all the ways that it was affecting our relationship was pointless and worthless because you would out argue me. Yeah. Um, and you had already at that point tried to quit and had worked on sobriety and read towards the last, that last five years of your 10 years of bad drinking. You had tried to quit yeah. for about 10 years. Yeah. So you knew that it was coming and it was slow coming, but I knew that there was nothing I could verbally bring to you because you would just out argue. Mm -hmm. And I knew you enough to know that you don't like to be alone. Mm -hmm. And so, and you, you always want to be engaged. You want to know what's going on. You are an information junkie in a way that you want to know what's going on, even if it doesn't affect you. Sometimes you don't remember you just like to have that conversation piece, or you did back then, like you right. wanted to be in the know, like I was keeping, you didn't want to have that feeling of keeping secrets or something. Right. So that's why the emotional detachment kind of came as like the next consequence and kind of a natural way of like, I just, I am done with you and yeah. I don't care what your opinion is about this. I don't care how you feel about this. I don't want you included in the relation in the kids and I experiences if you're there you're there if you're not you're not and I knew that that I knew and and it was hurtful in a way knowing it was going to affect you but also I was so bitter by then it didn't matter I think that's an important point we would like to help people take the shortcut to fixing this problem whether that results in separation and divorce or relationship reconciliation. Either way, we would like to help people take the shortcut. But there are parts of this that just have to happen in a more natural way. We have seen lots of people that try to implement boundaries and try to detach 
because they read it in a book or they listen to us talk about it. And it's really hard. It's really hard. When you're not ready to detach, you can't, it's not something you can just learn some techniques from a YouTube video and then implement them and be successful. And so the point that you're making about how you just had to get there, you didn't detach because somebody told you to or a book told you to, you detached because you were done. And so I really am glommed onto your theme about raising the bar. That's why I think it is so important that we help people understand that you shouldn't tolerate being gaslit and being called names and being yelled at, even if it's just once a month or once every six months. That is not okay. And so the more you find that treatment intolerable, the more quickly you will reach a point where you're not going to put up with that shit. And the detachment won't be because you read it in a book. The detachment will be because you think enough of yourself that you're not going to let anybody treat you that way. And if you're not going to let anybody treat you that way, detachment comes naturally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you learn really quickly yelling at them and telling them to stop, and then they repeat the behavior. Being intolerant of the repeated behavior is the key. It's fine if somebody calls you a name or lies to you and you catch them and you try to straighten them out. And maybe you do. And they never do it again. Great. Good job. But when they do it again, stop telling them not to. Start taking action. Yeah, and I think that's where the lack of like self-confidence came in to the early part of our relationship, like... I didn't, you know, we're just young and immature yeah. and we're not self-confident. We can easily be swayed and, and I had goals and I had aspirations that got easily knocked aside because I thought it was going to be making our relationship better to believe you with, you know, some of the gaslighting. I mean, it was hard to swallow. Like, everybody drinks like this. No, no, they don't. I know that, but, you know, I come from an alcoholic home, so how would I know that? You know, that was hard to swallow. Well, I think that's a another really good and important point. But we shouldn't stop at everybody drinks like this. We should look at the behavior that's associated I mean, it's one thing to say, I'm still in my young 20s and all my friends go out and drink and get blasted every weekend. All right, great. But do they come home and scream and yell and call their girlfriends or wives or whatever bad names? Because that, that's the problem. It's I mean, I would argue behavior, now, yeah. right? I look at it differently now, right? I yeah. think just your brain not functioning properly, I think that's red flag enough. Like, I, I, I don't understand why we... Uh, glorify in our society this idea of putting a poison in our bloodstream so that our brain doesn't function properly and then we laugh at the behavior. Ha ha ha. Look what he did when he was drunk. Ha ha ha. I don't understand that anymore. I used to though. Right? But so if that isn't a red flag, fine. Fine. If you think partying on the weekend is great, fine. But the the associated behavior of the gaslighting and the name-calling and the yelling and the belittling and the denying, that's got to be the stuff that is not tolerated even for a minute. Well, I think... Um, We've got to raise the bottom to that point, right? And one of the things that you and I have talked about in the past, and I think it's been a while, we've talked about how... You know, is drinking a problem in your life? You know, when you've taken those tests and then how you kind of assess it in your relationship. If it's a problem for your partner, you know, whether it be behaviors or they just don't like the amount or they don't like who you become, you know, or they just don't feel comfortable like every weekend being a party, that's like a level of respect that's not there. If I were to say to you in our early relationship, Matt, I really don't like that you go out every Friday for happy hour. Because for one, and then it drags on until way late, and I have to work on Saturday mornings. That was the scenario for us. And you didn't care. 
That should have been a red flag. You don't care about my feelings about it and that there was work that I had to get up and do the next day. So it was the behavior, well, even though I, it wasn't volatile behavior, it was just insensitivity and disrespect. But I think the harm has to be there. You know, if, if I had just gone to happy hour every Friday and come home at, let's say, 8 o'clock at night, then I don't think, and I came home and was pleasant and helped with the dishes and, you know, whatever, was respectful then I don't think you've got much of a leg to stand on. But personally, personally. Mm -hmm. But if it does start at happy hour and end up at 1 o'clock in the morning, or I do come home and I'm useless, and passing out is the best case scenario, because the worst case scenario is that I get grumpy and angry, and I'm mean to you, or I demand sex, or whatever. That That's where there's harm being done to you. And I think... That's the part that's really important. It doesn't have anything to do with me and what my friends are doing and what's normalized. It has to do with what you deserve. If you have to work on Saturday morning, you deserve to not have me uh, watching movies really loud with the volume up and keeping you awake, even if it's just something as innocent as that. You deserve better. Or you deserve me not spending $150 every Friday at the bars buying drinks for myself and and my friends when I'm when we're on an entry level income newly out of college or whatever whatever the yeah. case they, you got to point to the harm and if you because that's tangible right if you are the partner and you are being harmed in some way you just deserve better and gone are the days or gone should be the days hopefully someday gone will be the days where you just say oh that's what it's like to be newly married and he's still young and it's okay you know i'm sure he'll grow out of it like, you deserve to be respected more than that. So, whew. So I would not have let separation happen because I was too weak. And I could see the signs coming. And so just the reality that it was coming was enough to get me sober. And there's a lot of people that fall into that camp. That do not respond to cajoling and begging and pleading and some kind of family intervention with a professional there. There are lots of people that don't respond to any of that, but will respond to detachment up to and including, uh, I think we're done, I'm going to leave, or you're going to get kicked out, or whatever, and they just can't do it. And we just heard of a case this week or last where the, per the, the partner legitimately was just ready to move out. It wasn't a threat at all, and it got the... The drinkers, you know, to explore sobriety. Now, I don't know that the relationship's going to make it because enough damage has been done, but at least that was the incentive. Uh, the next categorization, next little grouping for me is um, we do know lots of people who do experience the alcoholic getting sober during the separation. I think this is a really important point separating does not mean the same thing as divorcing. We've seen so many cases where a couple separates and it does a couple of things. One of the things it does is for the the partner, the the spouse, it gives them room to breathe. It gives them a safe place to come home to where they're not worried about the most dangerous thing in their life walking through the door. They're not worried about having their guard up and being ready in case it maybe it's a good night, maybe he doesn't drink that much, but maybe it's a bad night, maybe he drinks a lot and he starts yelling or demanding sex. And so that physical separation gives them a chance to do some nervous system repair and have peace of mind that as bad as it is, obviously if you're separated from your spouse, it's bad. As bad as it is, it's not going to get worse tonight. Tonight I'm going to get a good night's sleep and I don't have to worry about whatever level of drinking is going to take place. So the physical separation allows the partner to have some room to breathe and uh, make some, you know, good decisions and think things through. There's all kinds of benefits for the partner. For the alcoholic, often the physical separation gets them sober. Like that's enough of a reality check. For me, I didn't need to go even that far, right? The reality was staring me in the face and I couldn't take it. But for some people, they need that physical separation before they're in enough pain, as Jason would say, to uh, make the change.
What are your thoughts about the benefits from the side of the spouse? Because, you know, you were the spouse of an alcoholic. You never got that break. I was always here. And so I think your nervous system repair took a long time. It was really hard. And you didn't even know what that meant. You know, neither of us did. But can you see benefit from separation looking back on what you lived through to give you some peace to fig just figure things out? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there could be a lot of benefit from it. Like you said, just a good night's sleep, figuring things out, not having to feel like I'm over-functioning, walking on eggshells all the time. So this summer, our daughter and I were talking about what it was like growing up in our house. And I had mentioned the the third party entity um, into the marriage as kind of an equation. Like, there was your dad, and then there was your dad drinking. And then there was me. The whole blame the alcohol. The blame, blame the, the alcohol. alcohol. And yeah, then, okay. like, make that, like, the alcohol, like a third person. Yeah. And then... You know, it was, she shared with me, like, I was a ball of energy and nerves and wreck and on high alert. So I, like, envisioned myself as this, like, red fireball that's just zapping electricity all the time. So me being high-strung brought a lot of anxiety into their lives. Yeah. So having them separated from that, just letting me calm down a little bit. And removing them or, you know, the partner from the house and they're in their own space. I can see it would have been a world of benefit from them in a lot of ways. Yes, they would have missed you. But I think it would have been a different scenario. Um, especially, like, with some of our kids who have anxiety and kind of anger issues. Because they don't, they didn't really, like, in their formative years... They were with the alcoholic. They didn't see and remember a whole lot of bad scenarios. But the feeling was there. Yeah. That energy in the house was there. Making them feel worried. And they didn't know why. We've heard stories. Heard one just recently from a situation where the couple separated. And... One of the really tangible things that the spouse noted was that as soon as the separation happened, the kids started sharing the common areas in the house. <coughs> started coming out to the living room or family room or whatever you call it in your house. And being social with the other family members and, you know, watching TV or hanging out. Yeah, and that's kind of how and, our house ran for a while. And Everybody I think, kind of went you know, to their rooms. Yeah, and if or you... Or the playroom. And if you watch... You know, movies or TV, and they depict a family that's not even in trauma, but just a family that's got some issues, let's say, a little bit of minor dysfunction. They always show the teenage kids going to the room and slamming the door and turning their music on really loud. And But that's not what healthy families look like. Like, that gets portrayed as being normal. I don't, I think normal is when. The shared spaces in the house are occupied. Maybe I shouldn't use the word normal. Healthy, functional is when the shared spaces in the house are being occupied by the kids. And so it is heartbreaking when I hear those stories and I hear them a lot about, you know, the separation happened and all of a sudden the kids, it's like turtles poking their heads out of their shell. All of a sudden the kids are, and they're bringing friends over. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is what it's supposed to be. You're supposed right. to feel comfortable bringing your friends over. You're supposed to feel comfortable in the... In the common areas. Right. And then like like our daughter described on the podcast, how she came home from whatever activity she was doing and and she would check all the rooms and check and read the house. Yeah. She wouldn't is have Is everybody had, locked in the room or some people out there, in the living yeah, room? Yeah. So I just think about how that could have changed. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Her feeling like having to always read the room and analyze and... I kind of imagine like a laser beam eyes going across and like scanning everyone to see their 
personality and their mood and so I would encourage folks to think of separation not as a direct line to divorce so much as there are some really healing components to it both for the loved one for the kids and potentially for the alcoholic if that is the thing that raises the bottom high enough that they say that's it I cannot stand this I cannot live without my family and if no matter no matter how I feel about my drink maybe I don't think my drink is that bad who cares my family's gonna leave they think it's that bad and so I've got to recognize that sobriety is my only option. So there are people that fall into that category for sure. But I think we should be realistic about this. For some people, losing their family is not enough. For some people, losing their family is not enough. So while detachment, even up to and including separation, is the only thing that I'm aware of that as the loved one, as the spouse, you can do that could potentially impact sobriety for your drinker, it doesn't always work. There, you know, and I don't no idea about percentages, but it's big percentage of situations where realistic, true, truly threatening to leave or actually leaving, neither of those are enough, and the alcoholic continues to drink even after the separation and then eventually even divorce takes place. And you know, I'm you and I are not therapists, we're not psychologists, but certainly insecure attachment styles way into this um, bad family situations growing up so you maybe don't see the value of keeping the family together because maybe you grew up in a household where your family did stay together and it was dysfunctional and there was yelling and screaming and cursing and maybe physical abuse as well and so you don't have that much you don't put that much value or that much stock on keeping the family together so the idea of the family separating it's, that's to me, that's absolutely devastating. But for some people, that's not devastating. That's just kind of what you almost, you're used to and almost expected. Well, can I just do like a little plug from, and, and maybe I'm off base since I'm not the alcoholic partner in our relationship, but I just think of how selfish and how motivated the timeline for sobriety is versus the partner. Mm -hmm. They're so diverged that that could become very uncomfortable in the relationship in the house like watching that person run towards sobriety and the partner just holding back mm -hmm. so sometimes separation i i would think even as the addicted person maybe it's not a terrible thing because then i can really self-focus and i can also kind of prevent this like while I'm trying to figure out what works for me in sobriety what are the programs I'm going to use because I just think about how you changed your mind so often in a lot of ways and like oh this is the new plan it, it, not necessarily incorporating drinking back in but like I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do you know like in dragging the whole family through the muck and mire of you figuring out your sobriety and what's going to work and then being in the house but being unattentive to the family members, sometimes it might, you might look at it from that point of view that you're all, instead of going to a rehab facility, you've kind of separated yourself so you can really focus and work on yourself and give 100% to that and then come back to the family I had a, much healthier. I had a realization recently. I used to think of sober living as something in between rehab center and, and re-entry into the the rest of your normal life, I used to think of it as something that people needed if they weren't quite there. Or, you know, um, something that... Court ordered. <laughs> almost a sign of, again, I feel terrible saying this, but almost a sign of weakness that, oh, you, you can't go from rehab back into your normal status life. quo, or your, your pre-rehab status quo. You've got you've to have this kind of bridge. Oh, you know, I'm sorry for you. I don't look at it that way at all. I think sober living is brilliant. It is exactly what you're talking about. It's an opportunity to focus, as the alcoholic, to focus on my rehab and my recovery and... Mental health. Learning all the things and doing all the things and running a million miles an hour towards sobriety while not driving my family nuts. And also not being triggered because when we go back to our normal households, even if, you know, I don't live with other alcoholics, so you might think, oh, it must suck to be single and in your 20s and trying to get sober because all your friends drink all the time. 
well, what about the fact that I've got a, a charcoal grill here at the house? And every time I grilled, I drank. And so that is hugely triggering. Just grilling chicken on a Saturday night mm-hmm. in early sobriety is hugely triggering. Even if there's nobody else around, doesn't matter. Yeah. That note, means drinking. Note to our listeners, I think you grilled only once your first year of yeah, I, uh, sobriety. Well, because I And that was I because it was a Thanksgiving thing. When drinking sometimes because mm-hmm. I thought, oh, what is... What is I mean, people Grilling might people might think that's silly, but those are the minute exactly details right. that throw people into that. And so I think that sometimes us being together caused a lot more friction and tension because I was like, fuck, I don't want to hear what your next plan is. Just shut up and read your book. Yeah. If that's what your plan was, you know, and I don't want to hear what you have to say. So. So that separation can be valuable to, to both parties. You're right. But back to the, Sorry. this, con- no, I'm glad you added that. Back to this idea, though, that for some, losing their family is not enough. Um, you, some people, you know, you talk about beating alcohol, beating addiction. Some people can't beat the denial. Some people can't stop blaming their spouse. Some people can't recognize that the alcohol is the problem. You and I talk all the time about blaming the alcohol, and they just they want it, they just won't let go of the fact that they believe that their spouse is a bad wife. Or their spouse had X, Y, and Z problems growing up, and that's why they're not able to offer the love and support that I need and do the things I need. And so it's just their fault. It's not the alcohol. It's their fault. Some people can't beat the denial. Um, I do want to make the, the point that I believe to be true, that when separation is not enough to bring about sobriety, I don't think very often that it's because that person, the drinker, doesn't love their family. They're just too unhealthy to get over the hump. And again, sobriety is just a little nano piece of the hump. Not putting alcohol to your lips is part of it, but whether it's insecure attachment style, bad family situation growing up, you can't beat the denial. These are the real things, the underlying issues that have to be addressed. And if you can't beat those unhealthy, ment- mentally unhealthy situations, then detachment is, is maybe not going to be enough to bring about sobriety. And it's a real shame. But I don't think it's, I don't know of any situations where the drinker just doesn't love his family. And I, But I know as the loved one, you think that. You think, I separated, I did all the things, I detached, and he still won't stop drinking. He just must not love me. I don't think that's true. Not very often, anyway. I think it's a matter of they don't love... The drinker doesn't love themselves enough Ooh, to think powerful. they deserve the love. Yeah. Yeah. They're in such an unhealthy space that they can't do it. Totally agree. Um, I'm very thankful to the fact that I had low enough self-esteem that I couldn't take the hit of losing my family and I got sober out of weakness. Um, I know there's a lot of alcoholics that'll listen to this and think getting sober was the hardest thing I ever did. It took an incredible amount of strength and I don't want to discount that. That is true. Finding sobriety is really, really hard. It takes a ton of strength. But to me, the strength involves rebuilding self-esteem more than anything else. The strength to not lift a toxic liquid to your lips, that's strength you can find relatively easily, relatively quickly. We know lots of people who white-knuckle it through early sobriety. Not lifting the toxin to your lips, that's not what you should be congratulating yourself for. You should be congratulating yourself for taking a low self-esteem situation and somehow finding enough self-esteem to be worthy of long-term sobriety and recovery and recognizing that your family is worthy of it too. So... I know you didn't know what you're doing, but I'm glad for all of the moves you made because we wouldn't be here today without them. And if someone is feeling like the detachment that they're imposing on their drinker is too severe and it's not compassionate enough, gosh, I'm not sure that's possible. Because to use your words, raising the bar, raising the bottom, the bottom um, I'm not sure there's anything more compassionate you can do for a drinker. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. 
If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.